When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. Hello and good morning, listeners. I am so excited that this week's interview is happening because we've been trying to make this work for about six weeks now, I think. Um, my guest, Nadia, lives in the Netherlands. So we've been navigating this seven-hour time difference for a while and finally making this happen. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, wanted to talk to you um, about your story and what happened um, after the loss of your husband and what your life looks like now. So we are going to go ahead and get started um, and just maybe start by just telling us what happened um, right after your baby girl was born. So Fleur was born on the 18th of December, 2015. She was at 11 days late. Um, it was a pretty full on labor um, and Jeroen just, he just took to being a dad. He was so proud. He was so in love with her, with me. Um, like all his dreams did come true at that moment and life just made sense. It was a really intense period. My parents were there as well. His mom was there. And after about nine, eight, nine days, they all left and we had the house to ourselves. And that was the first time we're like, oh my God. Yeah, like you come home with your baby and you're supposed to know what you do, but you have no idea. And we were so <laughs> intimidated. But in, the strange thing is that you always had this total trust and belief in me as a mother. Like he could do it because he knew I could do it. And I'm like, I have no idea how to do this. <laughs> but that thought or his belief in me really helped me through the darkest of days. Um, so yeah, on the 11th day, on the 29th of December, um, it's a Dutch tradition to send cards announcing the birth of your children. So um, you don't created the cards, you wrote the cards, uh, he did everything because he's like, that's the one and only thing I can contribute. I wasn't allowed to do anything. So it was the Tuesday afternoon and uh, my parents had just left and Jeroen was like, you know, what? I'm just quickly going to go out and I'm just quickly going to post the um, the cards and we're going to wait for a friend who's going to come to us at about two o'clock and I said to him don't go now we can do it later together it was more of a practical reason that I didn't want to sit there nursing Fleur and 
and needing to open the door while Yerun wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, he's like, no, I'll be right back. And uh, he gave me a kiss. I'll see, I'll see you in a minute. And Yerun never came back. He was stabbed to death right outside our front door by a total stranger suffering from psychosis at the time. And he was stabbed with a kitchen knife of about 30 centimeters. Um, he had about 30 stabs all over his body. He, I mean, I've been told that he died from shock pretty much instantly. Uh, but all of that happened within five yards from our front door. So pretty much the second he left the house, he was attacked. And he screamed for help. He ran for his life. At one point, he stumbled. And that was it. And I was sitting upstairs with Fleur. I had no idea what was going on. I was posting pictures of Fleur and me to friends. Oh, look how happy we are. Um, and it took me a while before I realized, like, it's quarter past two. Where's our friend? Where's Jeroen? Yeah. So I was totally in my bubble. And um, then I noticed that Jeroen had left his mobile phone on the table. So I picked it up and I noticed that our friend had called. So I called our friend and he immediately said, listen, I can't come to you. Something's happened. By which point I, I was like, oh, don't worry. I'm just going to come down and I'll let you in. And as soon as I walked down, I wrapped up Fleur and I just had a strange feeling. Yeah. It, I had no idea what I was going to expect. And as soon as I opened the front door, there was, I immediately noticed the homicide turned to the left. Um, there was a lot going on on the street. There were people all over the place. There was police, um, a lot. And we live in a quiet, like, like, a cool, like a crescent. So normally there isn't any traffic or anything. Um, and then outside our front door, there was a police officer standing there. So I immediately approached her and I said, can I just go and look for my husband? He's just left and I just want to see where he is. Yeah. And I literally thought he was going to be like 10, 20 yards behind where they barricaded the street, or cordoned off the street. And she asked me for his name, for the description. And the only thing I could come up with, it's like, oh, he's tall and good looking as a description of your husband. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, he was. Yeah. And um, so I gave the name where we lived and then she sent me back up with Fleur. And we lived on the second floor. And I walked up the stairs and I just, I, I, I don't know if I knew that something had happened to you then, but the feeling of walking upstairs, it was just really, really strange. I come to our, our apartment and I just put Fleur on the bed to take her onesie off or her snow outfit. And then there was a knock at the door. And as soon as I heard the knock and I opened the door and there are three police officers in front of you, I immediately know what had happened, immediately. And your whole world collapses in a millisecond. They didn't even have to tell me what happened. Um, just the holding up Yudun's university pass, which was the only thing he was carrying. He didn't have a mobile phone, he didn't have his wallet, no ID card, but he had his university card with him. Uh. And... Um, yeah, by that time, Fleur was 
11 days old. 11 days old. 11 days old. Yeah. Did your, um, did your friend make it to your house? Yeah. And, and that's a strange thing. Cause he was there in my opinion now, or in my recollection within a second. Oh, okay. Cause the police asked me, is there someone who can use someone who's here, someone that we can call. Um, and before I knew it, there were like two friends there and then another friend of mine who lived in East London and it took her about, it would have taken her an hour, but in my recollection, it was all in an instant. Everybody was there. The wow. house was filled with people. Wow. So I didn't ever feel alone at that time. Yeah. And I know it can't have been a second. It must have taken them a while to realize who they were, what their phone number is before they could be up in our flat. But yeah. Did you, but did you walk downstairs to go? I walked downstairs. Yeah. To, to let our friend in. Well, but to go down the street to see what happened. Yeah. Okay. Cause we, we had a, there was a, um, an entrance through the back and I thought I could just let him in that way. Okay. But it was just totally impossible. So I had to go onto the main entrance um, and then you immediately saw all the commotion. Okay. So you didn't actually walk down the street to go and find him? No, I wasn't allowed. Because oh, there was a police officer right outside the front door and she was blocking me and asking me where, where I was going, what I wanted. I was, was going to look. If I, and I immediately approached her and said, I'm, I'm looking for my husband. Yeah. But she wouldn't and let you go. No, it was in the middle of the winter. And she's like, we might cordon off the street even more. We don't really know what's happened yet. Um, just make sure that you're inside with the baby and you're safe and sound and warm um, and that your baby is okay. Okay. So when did you actually find out what had happened to him? Like um, the details of it. That afternoon, but you know, as soon as they knocked on the door, say some, I don't actually remember what they said. If they said your husband died or your husband was stabbed to death, I I don't know. Okay. I have, I, I honestly I do not remember, but I know that the the details came out in the afternoon, and there were so pe- so many people around me, and they had to keep feeding me the information because I couldn't take it in. Yes. I think yeah. once you get that initial news, everything else is just sound. It, yeah. And, not- and that's exactly it. It's, it's blur, it's sound, and you're just in a, yeah, I, it's such a strange, unreal feeling. I've never experienced since then, and I hope I will never have to experience that again because life just stops. So you there had, is so much sound, and at the same time, you can hear a needle drop. Yeah, yeah. You had um, you said your parents had just left, so your parents came back right away. Right away, yeah. You had some friends around too, but I mean, you're having to take care of Floor and making sure the baby's okay and trying to feed her and staying up all night so you have the sleep deprivation going on with that too shortly after when you did find out the details of what had happened um you had told me that there was a person that 
witnessed everything. Yeah. Did you get to speak to her directly and, and find out? I would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you. How to get your life back together after loss, a 10-step checklist. After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. I think it was a few days later. Um, but very early on, I made the decision of, I wanted to know everything, everything I could know. I, I wanted to have all the details. Yeah. And I also made the decision that I would want to do everything straight away. Like I wanted to stand on the spot where Yudum was murdered. Yes. I wanted to speak to the person who tried to save Yudum's life. I wanted to speak to the officers what had happened. Um, there's something in me that just needed to know. Yes. And I mean, this one, she was 23. She witnessed what had happened from her flat. And she ran downstairs, interfered with the attacker who attacked, and who was stabbing Yerun. And she just screamed, like, stop, stop, stop. And I think by that point, he ran off. And then he, she was with Yerun. She was 23. So incredibly brave. Brave, yeah. To go, to go downstairs, risking your own life and being with my husband. So I know that he wasn't alone when he took his last breath. I thought he might have already, but she immediately realized that he passed away. He was dead. She couldn't do anything anymore. So she just said a prayer, held his hand. I've spoken to her and I'll never forget her. No. No. But knowing that he wasn't alone and knowing that he had someone there that was holding his hand and that was with him and that was praying for him, I'm sure that brought you a lot of comfort too. What a brave act of hers to go down there at 23 and yeah. risk her own life. Risk her own life. Yeah. Yeah. Really? I mean, I guess there's no thought in your head when you see something like that happen, happening. You just, you just, and act. you just act. And that's what she did. It was, yeah. It was pure <laughs> compassion. Strange thing is she didn't, she didn't even think that she was brave. Well, that it was something extraordinary she did. For her, it's like, just that's what you do. Yeah. This supernatural power takes over. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yeah, it's, it's brought me some, some comfort. Um, but I've had a lot of thought. Of, Jeroen's last thought, obviously, were with us. You know you're going to, you know you are being attacked. You know you're falling. You know you're about to lose your life and you're, wife and your newborn are upstairs 
I mean, my situation is pretty dire, but uh, just thinking what Jeroen would have to go through or yeah. did have to go through, I find that really, really hard. I know. And that's a thought that stays with you for years. Yeah. For me, was, was th- my thinking, you know, what was, what was going through his head as he's yeah. sitting there? You know, and because I I got all the information and all the details, and I was like a sponge, so I started to create this own film in my mind. Like I saw what how it was unfolding, I I didn't witness it, but it's like I've been there, and that is very very traumatic. But on the other hand, it, there was no way for me of not knowing the details because then I would have started making the details up. So I just needed to know. But I guess everybody deals with it differently in their own way, and there's no right and wrong. For me, that's what I needed to do at that moment and in that time. So he, the person that did this, he ran away, but he was caught shortly after. He was caught uh, within a few minutes. Okay. And then you came to find out that his... I guess, list of previous things that he had done was pretty long and there was a history of mental health issues, obviously there, but he was taken to jail and charged with um, manslaughter or what, how did, how did all of that end up playing out as far as um, charges against him and a trial and how, how, what happened with that? So we had the trial on the 10th of October at the Old Bailey um, in London. And you know, I really have to, you, I went totally on autopilot. I was, I was really aware of what was going on. I could tell you all the details. I have no law, judicial background, but I could tell you all the paragraphs and could tell you the difference between murder and manslaughter and was the maximum charges he could get. And that all seems to have vanished from my mind now. And I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah. Um, but because he had a mental health disorder, they couldn't charge him for murder. It had to be manslaughter. And with manslaughter, the conditions are much less than with murder. And in the UK, there is no sentence for life. It's very very limited in a way and he got a um a hospital order so he's constantly reviewed by by doctors by psychiatrists how he's doing he's on medication i'm being updated on how he's doing um when he would be allowed to be back in 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 the public again yeah but it's not like i know that he's in jail for 20 30 40 years yeah he might be doing fine in about five, six, eight years. And then he might be out in the open again under some conditions. But there's nothing I can do about it. That's the way. And I know that the, the judge was like, I wish I could do it differently. But my hands are tied. This is the maximum I could do with the conditions I'm faced with. So we said in the old, uh, old Bailey I knew that I needed to be in court. I read out a victim impact statement, how his 
murder, his act has affected our life, the life of Fleur, of our families, and I needed to come face to face with him. And that alone is probably the hardest thing to do as well, is to face him. But again, there was no thought process because I knew I needed to do that. There was so much, and the thing is, I've I've promised myself from the beginning, I'm not going to be hard and I'm not going to be bitter. But when it came to him, I came like this, and I think I managed it all and kept it kind of under control. Yeah. But if I would go free, I was this raging fireball. Yeah. But I didn't really let myself be that person. And I didn't want to waste any of my energies on him because I had so limited energies that I'd rather use it on, on Fleur and on life and, and not, not on him. Yeah. And I, that, that's, yeah, I think that's what I've done from the beginning to focus on life and bringing up Fleur. And I made a promise to show her the beauty of the world and to, yeah, to live my life to the fullest so she could, I mean, I felt like I had to be mom and dad in one. And I know you can't be, but it's like this double burden you feel. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Joran? I just would like to know what his, uh, tell everyone what his job was and what he was doing he with was the saying, world and what his vision was. He was an amazing person. And however I'm going to tell this, I'm not going to do him any justice. Because um, I always seem to be running out of words because my memories are totally in my heart and not so much with his profession. But he worked at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he was a senior course lecturer for a, uh, a master's course. Um, and apart from, I mean, tutoring was his lecturing and tutoring was his. I think that was his passion to to guide people in the wrong direction. Uh, in the right direction, sorry, and to really encourage them to make them believe in themselves and their gifts in and living that that passion and their mission and their vision and really to drive them towards their goal. And then he was involved with a lot of different projects, um, mainly focused on sanitation. And um he traveled the world. And he always worked in um yeah, third world countries, develop developing countries to make those basic services like water and sanitation accessible to everyone. What's normal to us isn't normal to more than half of the population. And he worked in the most deprived areas, um, encouraging students, institutions over there to, to work towards the same goal. And when everything comes together, it just kind of flows. And uh, he's done some amazing projects. I mean, the last one he was doing was in, uh, in the Congo, and that's a really big one. And that's why it was important for me as well that as soon as he died, I needed to know that all the projects continued. And from the school, we set up a memorial fund where, I mean, so many people donated money. And this fund is over a hundred. 100k, 100,000k, where we can, where it's possible to bring out a scholarship to at least one student per year and it's fully funded and they can do Yitlum's master course and then they can take their knowledge, bring it back to wherever they come from and lead by example, do what they believe in and make the world a better place because that's what Yitlum fought for. Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. 
Yeah, so it wasn't just a loss to us, but it was a loss to humanity and to the world. When I'm sitting here and I have like four different pictures of Jeroen looking, smiling at me, and I still feel so very, very, very much connected to him. Yeah. So yeah. You, you had decided after all of, all of these, once you got the trial out of the way, you did end up selling your place in London. I had to. You had to. It was, yeah. Um, I mean, there were different reasons, financial, legal reasons. Like I couldn't even get a mortgage for the house. The mortgage was Nirun's name. And technically it was my house, but I couldn't get a mortgage because I was a first time. I had to literally get a new mortgage and I was a first time buyer and it was a maternity leave and I didn't have sufficient funds. And uh, there was so much drama. And I fought for it a long time. And at one point I was like, right, I'm just going to, I'm going to let it go. And it was the best decision to just let it go and let go of the energy of the house as well. Because it was clear to me that I was never going to live there again. Exactly. To live where Yerun was stabbed to death. There's no way. To walk down the street with Fleur and say, this is where your dad got killed. There's no way. Absolutely not. No. There's absolutely no way. So where did you decide to move to? After the, um, the funeral, the cremation, and it took about five, almost six weeks before we were even allowed to have the cremation because it was a murder case and they needed to do all sorts of whatever the police needs to do in the CPS. It took them six weeks before we could have cremation. So it was beginning middle of February um, when I decided I'm just going to get in the car and I'm just going to drive home and I drove to my parents and I had to buy a car and then I was sitting in the car I was driving Flo was in the back seat and then Maxi Cozy and then in between us were Yudun's ashes and I drove for eight hours straight on my own thinking it was completely normal so you've made it to your parents house yeah and I thought, I'm just going to stay here for a few weeks and take a breath. And then I go back. But staying here for a bit turned into three months. And the longer I stayed at my parents, uh, my mom was amazing. She was, I, I wouldn't have made it through without a fleur and without my mom. She gave me the space to, yeah, to grieve, to, to be, I mean, she looked took care of Fleur like it was her own child. She did the night feed. She did everything. And all she encouraged me to do was go for a walk, go outside, take the dog, do it on your own. Go, walk, swim, do whatever. But apart from that, I had also all the the administration to do. It's amazing or incredible what you have to do, all the paperwork you have to do if someone dies and then on top of that I had to prepare for the court case yes um, yeah so I've never done that much admin as in that time and grieving I what you know I don't doing? think I actively grieved I went on on autopilot and just did what needed to be done yes I cried but I don't no, if I was actively grieving. I don't know how you do that because I was also, I just had Fleur. Yeah. I was a new mom. He was, I look back at the pictures now and I'm surprised that I took so many pictures. Pictures where I'm even smiling on. Really? 
You don't yeah. remember? Yeah. I don't know. remember any of it. The first two years, I told a blank in my mind. I have pictures that I can build my life back together, but I have no active recollection. Apart from a few snippets here and there. You're in survival mode. Uh, and that goes on for a long time. And it's definitely not a great space to be in. And I feel guilty towards Fleur. You know, I've not enjoyed her first couple of years. And I was get jealous of new moms when they were like, oh, when they had a conversation about diapers or what food the baby likes to eat. It just, I couldn't relate to anything they were saying and nothing mattered. And I think as a result, Fleur is probably one of the easiest kids you could she could hang out with anyone. She eats everything. She sleeps whenever <laughs> it was needed. It was incredible. But like, she knew she couldn't be an extra burden to me. And she adapted. <laughs> but I feel guilty because of that. <laughs> oh, what a blessing. But, okay, so you had the trial out of the way. And then you sold your place in London. And when did you start traveling? Yeah, that was September 2018. I got to the about two and a half year mark where I thought, right. And I think it was the first time I thought like, right, it, it looks like I'm doing a bit better. Um, I could see some light, mm-hmm. some light. And then my mom fell ill and she had a lung condition and it was fighting for her life pretty much from the beginning, but she ended up in coma for about eight weeks. Oh no! And when they managed to get her out of coma, she lost all her physical strength. She couldn't walk anymore. She couldn't feed herself anymore. And I really, I mean, she was in hospital and in rehab and all of that, but I took care of all the administrative things of that again yeah. and I my mom was two hours away and I drove there and Fleur never went to childcare. she never went to kindergarten she was with me 24 7 pretty much all the time until she started school so I kept all these balls up in the air juggling my mom's illness my own grief Fleur's needs it was exhausting totally exhausting and um it looked like my mom was going to come home to recover there. And she died from one day till the next, very unexpectedly in the end. And she passed away on the 1st of January, 2018. Oh my God. So that's three years. No, that was, sorry. That was two years and two days after Yuluna died. So my entire support network yeah. fell away. And, and then it was on my 39th birthday where I was standing in, the, in our garage and I just looked in the mirror and I said to myself, I was cursing, I was really mad. I was like, my 40th birthday is not going to be like that. And then it was like I, heard a, I, like I heard my mom say, just go traveling. And by the time I'd left the garage, I was like, right, I'm going to go traveling. And my decision was made. And it wasn't like I'm going to do a one-week trip. No, I'm going to do trip around the world (laughs) and now I'm not going to do it for three months I'm going to do it for a year 
and I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. And out of a sudden I had a purpose and I started to look at flights and routes and yeah, I didn't really tell a lot of people about it because <laughs> I think I kind of felt like everybody would have an opinion about it. I told my dad who by that point wasn't doing very well either and he couldn't live by, by himself. So I needed to get a carer who looked after him so that I could have the freedom to travel yeah. knowing that he was looked after. Uh, he was very encouraging and so just if that feels like you have to do, then do, go. I need to say we've always traveled a lot as a family and my dad has worked abroad for pretty much all his life as well. Probably that makes a difference as well. Um, so where was this, this first big trip that you decided to go on? We went to Asia. We flew into, all I had was a return ticket to Bangkok and um, nothing else. I had the first two nights booked and that was it. That's it? That's it. What? <laughs> yeah. Maybe the first three what? nights. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Because <clears throat> I wanted oh. to have the freedom to know, to do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. Um. I was so exhausted by constantly having to making sure other people were all right. Mm-hmm. Like I looked after my dad, I looked after my mom, I looked after Fleur, I made sure everything, I kept up all the balls in the air and I was tired and I just wanted to be. And it was a purely intuitive decision. The more I thought about it, the more I intimidated I got by my own action. Yeah. But it was again I just needed to do that and I knew I needed to do that and off I went with a backpack and a small day pack and a stroller for Fleur as the days and weeks went by we just shared a lot of luggage because it was still too heavy still too heavy still too heavy (laughs) and then we just went on and um, Fleur was really really easy she just I think it was a different energy with me as opposed to being at home and just tr- getting through the day. And it's not a great feeling to get through the day, yeah. day in, day out, month in, week for week, month and years. Yeah. I was more in the moment and I really enjoyed my time with her. And I mean, obviously we had some really, really difficult times, very confronting moments where I was mad at her, where I was jealous at other people, where I was mad at the situation that I had to do on my own. Well, I was mad at Fleur that because of her, I couldn't go surfing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous was, saying it. But he was two and a half at the time? He was two and a half when we left. Was she potty trained? Yeah. Yeah? I told her we go traveling and I'm not going to take any diapers and I'm not going to take a sleeping bag and I'm not going to bring a bottle. Um, so she had half a year and she got off dummies, she got off bottles, she got off sleeping bags, she got off nappies. Because I said, I'm not going to carry it. You're going to carry all of it, right? I'm not going to carry it. (laughs) Okay. And that was it. Wow. It's a lot. How did she do with... I didn't think of it. Like, back then, it was... We're doing it. What I needed to do. We're doing it. it. I'm not going to carry around your diapers. Done. (laughs) How did she do with the food? Was she a picky eater? Or did no, she she's just never kinda... been a picky eater? No. She's just... always white rice, plain rice. Plain white rice. Okay. And yeah. ice cream. <laughs> and mangoes and bananas. 
Um, yeah. yeah, but I never even thought about that. I didn't think of any of the difficulties. I think I was so tired of thinking in obstacles, what I couldn't do. And I've made the decision that I wanted to think in opportunities. What can I do? What brings me joy? What do I want? And I knew that I didn't want to be the person I was, or the, the person I was back then. I was a shell of myself. I was gray. I was grieving. I was not a lot of joy. And I didn't want to be that person. And I didn't want Flair to also lose her mom when she'd already lost her dad. So I knew intuitively that I had to do something. And you did it. I know I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was the best the decision ever. It was best. the start of the healing. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. That it's it's yeah. like an awakening, right? Like you, you put your life again. Yeah. You put yourself in these situations where, um, you know, so there's a language barrier. You can, you still make it. You got, you got it. You can get by, you know, it's. Yeah. I never once had an issue with languages. It's scary. And of course you go traveling with the child with the child and she opens all the doors. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, people were so incredibly friendly. They went out of their way. Um, not once. Have I had a negative experience? Not once. That's so incredible. So you started this trip. Um, and wait, how long did that? Where did you go? And how long did that? We started off in, um, well, in total, it was nine months. Wow. And I literally <gasps> left the schedule completely open. I changed the flight throughout. And as soon as we went somewhere, I booked flights. I decided to do the visas. I had nothing planned. And at one point I was like, Flo, what do you want? Do you want to see temples or do you want to go to the beach? No, mommy, I want to see temples. Okay, we'll fly up to Myanmar. And the next day we went to Myanmar. What? Do you want to uh, do a cruise or do you want to wow. I don't know, see some orangutans? And I really involved her in the decision. Not all of it, of course. Um, but yeah, it was very, what do, what do we feel like? What do we want to do? I'm so sure you met a lot of a... expats along the way. And did you, you made some friends along the way and. Yeah. And you had yeah, to. But I mean, there, there were times where I was very lonely as well. And I remember one incident when we were in Bali and we we're on a scooter and I literally, I mean, it's the most beautiful place, most beautiful beaches, but with flow all the time, you can't share anything. And I was sitting on my scooter and I was talking out loud, like, right, you know, as lovely as this is, I'm sick and tired of being on my own. Can you just make sure there's a bit more, a bit more people around, people I can talk to? And the next afternoon, we met a Dutch family. We hung out with them. We met a lot of other people because of them. And we ended up staying in Bali for, I think, six weeks. Wow. And I was like, thanks, Jeroen. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I feel very, I feel very guided, and I know that he's with us, and I, I'm convinced that he looked out for us. We've never been in a in a dodgy situation, um, and Fleur is very intuitive as well. So as soon as when she was acting like a bit out of character, I picked up on those signals, and I left where we were. Or I didn't go there, or I changed the taxi driver at the last minute. Even when our luggage was already in the boot and Fleur didn't like the driver, I just got out. 
Go with your gut. Yes. Not like the right thing to do. It's logically a lot of things didn't make any sense. We did. I know. I know. But intuitively everything just was meant to be. And you're not normally like that. You're not normally like, let's do this, uh, just winging it. Or are you more Um, of a logical person than? Well, I've definitely changed over the years, but I've always been, well, if I say different, um, I've always done things my way. Like there was a box you could do it in and then there's out of the box and how you do it. And that's usually how I did it. Yeah. And I've always had people telling me, it's so Nadia. And and I've I've always traveled a lot. So this whole traveling thing that didn't intimidate me because I traveled the world before you and then I traveled a lot. Um, I've lived 20 years abroad. Right. So for me, that wasn't a big thing. But doing it with a two and a half year old by yourself is a different story. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know. I kind of felt that way too. When I would travel with, with Claire, it was like, I, I felt like I was being guided or I, I didn't feel yeah. like I was alone. I felt like he was with us. He was with yeah, us. I mean, totally. all those things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and watching over us, like we were okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I always had that such a beautiful feeling. And sometimes being at home in the regular day-to-day life, I miss that. But when you put yourself in more extreme situations and you also put your, open yourself a bit more, you're never alone. Yeah. Absolutely not. It made me less afraid to do, to do all those things. Oh God, I'm not afraid of anything. Really, I think we've <laughs> gone through the worst. We've survived yeah. everything. I've come out a better person. I'm not afraid of anything. Not afraid of anything. What was your, what is your favorite place in the world that you've been to? It's not about a place. It's about the people. Okay. It's about the energy of the place. It's the people we've met. There's so many different, beautiful places in the world. I can't pinpoint one. I would go back to all of them. Yeah. If I could (laughs) now. (laughs) Uh, No, it's definitely people and energy when I go with, um, well, for yeah, a I widow, Myanmar Bagan was beautiful. Okay. Oh, I was going to say just for, for I've a, been back to. Um, I'm sorry. I am just um, that for a widow that's traveling alone with her kids. Where would you recommend that they go? Tyler, I mean Asia in general is really, 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 really kid friendly. I could have dinner and they would entertain the kids. Uh, the waiting staff would look after the kids while you have your dinner. It's the first time in three years that I could have had a dinner and finish it while it's still hot. Um, <laughs> so really anywhere in Asia, but Thailand is really accessible. Yeah. And yes, it's way more on the tourism map than the deepest dogs in Indonesia. Um, I enjoyed Thailand. I was surprised by it because I'm more of an intrepid traveler. I was like, oh, it's too touristy for me. But it's really, really nice. Yeah. And with kids, you know, they have all the 7-Elevens and all the tours there. And it's, it's easy. It's accessible. Flights are well-connected. Trains, buses. It's, it works. Whereas in other countries, it's just a little bit more adventurous, yeah. which I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> but it might freak someone else out. <laughs> Um, well, I also wanted to talk to you, um, about, uh, 
your career decision because you had this completely different life before and then now you're doing all of this traveling, but what were you doing um, as far as a decision for what you wanted to do with a career or work in mind in the future? Yes, soon after it happened, I really thought I'm going to go back to London and I'm going to pick up the life I had. I was um, working as a managing director for an international events company, organizing huge events. That was my idea. I was just going to go back to what I did and I did it incredibly well. But working hours were insane, lots of evening weekends. And then it slowly dawned on me, right, I can't do this on my own. And I kept postponing the day I was going to go back to work. And I even agreed that by that point, we'd already moved back to the Netherlands, that I would work from home. And I kept delaying and delaying, like the energy in the room didn't feel right. I didn't sort out my house yet. You don't stuff us all yet. I can do any excuse you could come up with, but I just couldn't do it. And then about a year later that I made the decision, right, it's really not what I want to do anymore because it didn't, all the issues he dealt with just felt totally irrelevant to what I'd gone through. My standard reply was, did anyone die? No. So what's the issue? <laughs> but of course, that's not fair. Because in I my know. life, it just didn't make any more, se- any more sense. But in someone else's life, it's a huge, big issue. If the big deal to cold, them. It's not a or big the deal. Bus is laid or parked on the wrong side of the road. But, so everything was relative to me. Yeah. So I decided I'm going to stop with it. Um, yeah, and then I just didn't work. I mean, I worked so incredibly hard on just living. Yeah. And I'd still obviously worked on the, uh, on the court case, and I got the inquest off the ground, and I was involved with the memorial fund, and yeah. I did a lot of media work. and There's a lot of things going on, but I literally didn't even have time for a nine-to-five job. But I've also said from the beginning, this is too big to not do anything with it. So I always knew that I was going to write a book about this. I always knew that I was going to use whatever I had learned along the way to help others to overcome their grief, their trauma, to to start living again. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't know how. I'm a bit of a geek so instead of booking into all sorts of therapies for myself I book a course and I study it and I've done so many different studies by now that I've picked and choose from lots of different techniques um, that I've created or well not created but that I've decided I want to be a coach I want to help widowed moms who find it really difficult to choose life after loss And how how do you do that? And to create that holding space for someone, because what I've missed is someone who'd gone through a similar situation and understood what it was for me. And my go-to reply, even though I've been to therapists and they they were incredibly well-trained, I checked, so what's your story? What did you experience? And if they hadn't experienced any sort of trauma, I left. You can't help me. You don't know what it's like. You've read a book and it was relevant for me. Yeah. For me, talking to other widows was way more helpful 
but it also helped me if someone gone through something similar. And that's, I think, where you and I have a connection where we've both lost our partners to murder. And if I can create that space for someone where they feel heard and seen and understood and they can just be and throw everything out and slowly but surely start to live again and to enjoy life and to make that decision, yes, I still want to live. And even if I can help one person, one person with a book, the other one person with a coach, um, I've achieved a lot and Jeroen's death wasn't in vain. That's how it feels for me because I know what I've missed and that's what I want to create for someone else. And it's giving that. And again, for me, it just feels like the most natural thing to do. Nothing about this feels amazing or extraordinary. Um, It's just what you do to help others by what you've learned yourself. It's a beautiful gift. It's a hard road to walk. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But if I can make that road for someone else a little bit easier, that means a lot to me. Yes. So you had talked about that there were these points or a point where, you know, you made this decision that you wanted to see the positives and that you you wanted to find happiness again and that it's, it's important that people see that after the trauma that you've been through and, and the, the brutality and that that's the word of what happened, but that you are still able to see the positives in life and that you have accepted what happened. And so I wanted to ask you, how long would you say, it took you to accept what happened with him because that was, that was hard for me. It was hard for me. It is incredibly hard. And there are different grades of acceptance. And in the beginning, it's just so totally unreal to even understand that he's dead. I couldn't even accept that fact. I think it took me about half a year to just get to grips with waking up without him, living my life without him. But there was no sort of acceptance. It was, okay, this is what it is. I understand what it is like, but I didn't want to accept it. But it goes so gradually that I find it really difficult to put a time against it. I find time and grieving is just, for me personally, totally ridiculous. Oh, the first year is the hardest. The second year is the hardest. You know, it's totally personal. And I've had a couple of really, really rough weeks, which I thought were even harder than the first couple of months. Yeah. The first couple of months, I was on autopilot and survival mode. Now I'm trying. And sometimes you're trying way too hard. (sighs) Have I accepted now? Yeah, it might sound strange when I say I still haven't fully accepted it. I've acknowledged it. I think there's a difference between acknowledging and accepting. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Because in my mind, there's also the murderer. And how far do you accept that? What has happened? Is it about the acceptance of the death? Is it acceptance of the murder? Is it acceptance of the failure of the institutions? There's a lot of different acceptances. No, I agree. Because if you accept... If you go back to and, and you, you accept that he's gone, then that thought immediately does go to the reason why. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. and, you, and you don't want to accept yeah. that. You can't accept that part of it. It's no, not you okay. can't. It's not okay. No. So, and what makes grieving harder, harder in, my, in my opinion, someone else might disagree, but when you're dealing with murder or where the death was happened because of someone else, it's a different sort of grief than when you lose someone to an illness where you can maybe even prepare a bit or heart failure. And it's a natural reasons. Yeah. That's a different sort of acceptance as to you also have to accept what had happened because of someone else saying that I have no experience with a natural cause of death, but like my mom's death, I've accepted much sooner than Jeroen's death. Oh yeah. Because it was a natural way she passed away yeah there was no it was no one's fault but i've been failed by the institutions he's been failed i mean the murderer has been failed by the institutions um there was a lot of mistakes that has happened leading up to this disaster i know acceptance acceptance is a um is a tough subject when it comes to what you and i have been through and it's been yeah you know a much longer time maybe, for me and, and yeah. I'm still not I, I but for me acceptance sort of goes hand in hand with forgiveness and that I find a really tough one me too and I know I don't forgive him I, I, I forgive him for my own peace I understand all of that but I still emotionally have to live with it and that's difficult yeah so what was what would you say is um I guess the biggest change in yourself from the person that you were before to the person that you are now. I think I'm a kinder person. (laughs) Way, yeah, kinder, calmer, more accepting of what is, Mm -hmm. stronger, much more self, what do you call it, Um, Mm self-confident, because I know that literally I can do anything. It always cracks me up when there's something broken in the house and Flo just goes like, my mommy can fix anything. Because <laughs> I don't go back to like, I don't call anyone like, can you fix this? I figure it out myself. Yeah. So I've fixed everything in the house and it makes me so proud when Flo's like, my mommy can fix anything. <laughs> yeah. You um, figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, you just figure it out. And I think I'm way stronger than I thought I would ever be. But yeah, definitely kinder, calmer. I enjoy the little things. I think I rushed through life before, and now I know how precious life is. That I can, I mean, the sunset we had this evening was breathtaking. And I really took the time out to go for a walk with Fleur and to really enjoy it. And I even posted on an Instagram that it felt like Elon was sending all his love that the sky was singing a song song for us because that's how it felt I don't think I ever had those thoughts before I think life is way more beautiful now than it was I was more in an achiever mode I had to do this what do you want to be in five years time what are we going to do then what are we going to do then and now it's more about being instead of doing or having yeah I think that really is a gift to flirt to grow up this way with a mom who's much more aware of what's really going on and what really is important in life. And I'm definitely a better mom than I think I would have been if Jeroen would have still been alive. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) 
You are. You're doing what you said. You're taking her around the world. You're showing her. You're showing her what's important and what. Yeah, do. but that's also the day-to-day life in the little village we live here. That it's what does it make you happy? Be a kind person. It's it's the little things that make a massive difference. If it's in Asia or here in in our village. <laughs> Oh, it's a promise I made when I thought like Fred already lost her dad. She's not going to lose her mom to grief and trauma. But because I was so much on a had to do all these things that literally I'm, I'm coming up to five years now that there were a couple of incidents where it's really like, okay, this is really delayed grief. Because mm. I wasn't, I couldn't face them earlier on because I had to do everything. And you can't compare grief. It's impossible. It's a very personal and very lonely journey. And sometimes you feel the loneliest in a room full of people who you think are your friends, family, acquaintances, and nobody understands what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Where you just want to go home, put do duvet over your face and hide and cry. And in that moment, you feel less alone than in a room full of people. That's my experience. True. And with this whole thing comes a new personality, a whole new identity. Who am I? What do I find important in life? And with this new identity and new persona come new friends, a whole different social circle. I still have a lot. I'm still very connected to most of my friends from my past life, how I always say it. But I also have many new friends who have a totally different life too. I mean, they're so different. But I'm so different now because of what I've experienced. It's a different life. It is completely different life. And I wouldn't want to go back to the person I was back then. I would turn everything around to have Yerun back, but I prefer the version I'm now. (laughs) Well, Nadia, I just want to thank you so much for talking to us today. I could talk to you forever about all of these things, but... um, I think we could uh, do a few more because we haven't even touched the surface. I know, I know, I know. Um, Tell everybody where we can find you on your website and and on Instagram. I mean, the easiest is uh, is Instagram. It's just my full name, Nadia Ensingteich. And my website is nadiaensingteich.com. It's a difficult name. (laughs) You'll put the link in there. I will. I will put the link in the show notes that everybody has that. Yeah. And thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. I know we, like I said, we tried to make this happen several times and it's, I'm so glad that we finally, finally got. I'm really glad we did because I think it's, it's really important to, to talk about it, to, to a honor your own life and to show that grief can really empower people. Here are the takeaways from Nadia. Number one, Nadja's husband, Jiren, walked to the corner outside of their house to put cards in the mail and was stabbed about 30 times by a complete stranger. Number two, the trial happened October 10th in London, about 10 months after he was killed. Because of his mental illness, he could not be charged with murder. He was charged with manslaughter, so the charges weren't as harsh as they could be. Number three. She decided to sell her house in London because of the energy of the house, and she moved in with her parents for a few months. Her mom was her number one support in watching floor and encouraging Nadia to go for walks and to heal. Number four, it was September of 2018, about two and a half years 
after her husband was killed when she felt she was finally starting to get better. Her mom had passed away in January of 2018. And number five, on her 39th birthday, it was a turning point for her. She decided that she was going to travel and not just one week of travel. She was going to travel the world for an entire year with Floor. Number six, Nadja's decision to travel was purely intuitive. She was exhausted from taking care of everyone else and keeping all the balls in the air, and she just wanted to be. Number seven, Nadja said that her favorite places in the world were not because of the beauty of the actual place, but it was because of the energy and the people that she met there. Number eight, for a widow traveling alone, Nadja recommends Thailand and Asia in in general because they are so kid-friendly. Number nine, she decided to do a completely different career change and she became a widow coach so that she could help widows figure out how to rebuild their lives and get through their trauma. And number 10, Nadja says the biggest difference between the person she used to be and the person she is now is that she is kinder and calmer, more accepting of what is, stronger, more self-confident, and she literally can do anything. And I wanted to read this email that I got from Carolyn, who was in the Widow's Holiday Club. Carolyn says, I recently participated in the Widow's Holiday Club workshop that Jen developed. This turned out to be a wonderful and unique experience that exceeded my expectations. Jen encouraged open conversations, introduced interesting guest speakers, and included activities that promote self-healing and positive growth. I feel very fortunate to have participated and met some amazing and courageous women in the process. Carolyn, you added such light and joy to our group, and you have such a generous heart, and I'm so, so grateful to have people like you in my life. I'm so grateful for all of you listeners, so please subscribe to the podcast so you can get the the notifications when the new episodes come out every week. And join our Facebook group at 180 Widow180 Community. And go to widow180.com for resources, updates on programs, and to join our email list. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.